The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is coming from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained by the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in a place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Caleb. Well, I was wondering how cute that would be. It was immeasurably cute. And I think my, my favorite part was, if you've ever seen handbells, uh, like the big ones when people do it and they do this and they bring it back to their chest, I love how they were just like sticking them on their chest. Like, no, I'm not going to ring that bell. I'm not going to ring it. That was just really, I was super impressed with that. That was awesome. Thank you, Jordan, and all of you kids for doing that. And I want to invite you, uh, my name is Stacy Croft, by the way. I haven't, if I haven't met you, I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church uh, over here on, off Music Row. And uh, would love to meet you if I haven't. And uh, also, we have these black books in all the pews. If you'll take those and sign it, pass it down, put your name there. And uh, if you'd like to grab coffee or lunch uh, at some point in the new year, I'd love to. And uh, learn more about your story. And if you have any questions about our church as well as coming to our newcomer dessert, those kind of things, I'm happy to do that personally. I'd love to, love to meet you. But sign that book. Even if you've done it before, it uh, helps our church that's growing continue to to uh, be close and intimate and small. And uh, we actually have tomorrow a service that if you have not been to uh, Christmas Eve here, it is a beautiful thing. We'd love for you to be a part of that. If you, if you haven't or if you're a visitor this morning, come back uh, and bring friends. Invite, if there are people that you know uh, who are kind of looking for a service to come to or maybe you're in and out of church, uh, come. It's, it's going to be a glorious time of lessons and carols, kind of, a, kind of an old uh, English style of doing uh, worship, of uh, singing carols along with readings and a short homily, and uh, it's just going to be great. So please come to that if you will. Well, when I was in college, um, 
I remember going on a road trip with one of my closest friends, and we went through uh, 11 states in nine days, and uh, it was a kind of a spring break trip. It was fun. And uh, we decided we were going to do, we did everything. We went, we drove all the way up from Waco, Texas, where we were, uh, I went to Baylor, and then all the way up to Vail, Colorado. Uh, Some friends had a place where we're like, hey, we'll ski, we'll stay in your place and mooch off you. And then we drove from there all the way across the country through Kansas, uh, which was, there was nothing. It was just fields. That was a long drive. Uh, 22 and a half hours, all the way to Memphis, Tennessee, and then Memphis down to uh, Panama City and went to the beach. Uh, What a a trip that was. Um, And we actually didn't kill each other in the car, which was really funny. So, uh, but one of the the parts of that trip that was really fun was going to Memphis to stay with somebody we knew from, from college. And we had gotten tickets to, um, you know, Memphis, just right down the road, gotten tickets to Graceland. Now, I don't know if you've been to Graceland before. Um, you know, they kind of prepare you when you go in. It's kind of an interesting thing. They say, well, get ready. It's not, it's not the house like you think of Elvis the king. You know, it's not going to be this huge palace that maybe even some of you live in. And I'm like, okay, well, we go in the house. It's, it's, it's cool. You know, it had all sorts of stuff in it. And normal size house, but big, I'm sure, for the, the time period. And uh, we're walking around, and we see all the records and, you know, the, the, the interesting decor. And we get down to the Jungle Room, which I don't know if you've been to Graceland, but the Jungle Room is this famous room there. And I didn't know what it, what it would look like until I was in it. It's, it's essentially this room with carpet, like, everywhere, just on the wall. I mean, it's just odd. It's just this one of those weird things. And you can tell as you're walking around that there are people there you know, I'm in like I'm just not really. I'm, I know who Elvis is, enjoy some of his music, but some of these people at, at Graceland are like they're coming to really experience the King, right? So, like they want to, they're getting into it. So my friend, who uh, I love, decides, you know what? I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kneel in the jungle room. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna like let's get let's get an opportunity here just to be funny. So he kneels. And before he gets up, a, a woman comes up and puts her hand on his shoulder to, like, comfort him. And so <laughs> I literally am watching him as he's mocking Elvis with this woman who is literally feeling like, oh, and just, like, comforting my friend. I, I just kind of, like, leave him there. I just walked away. Uh, and he's just stuck in the jungle room. It, you know, it, it, when we talk about Advent and we talk about the king uh, and Jesus coming and this arrival— I really wonder how much it really impacts us. Uh, I wonder how much it really uh, shakes our world. Because, because we're reading a passage to where the announcement of Jesus coming as king of the Jews, it, it didn't come with kind of sentimentality. It didn't come with mocking. It came with force. It came with anger, fear. It came with a lot. I mean, and to the degree it can be easy to sentimentalize uh, Christmas and Advent and, and what it means that Jesus actually comes as a king, there is no mocking here. Herod's reaction is to a competing monarchy. That's what it is. He sees something, and in fact, you'll hear a little bit of this this morning. We actually have, in fact, more historical, extra-biblical meaning outside of the Bible work on Herod the Great, this actual figure, than nearly anyone. 
mean, there's so much about this man and his reaction to Jesus and, and the things that you read about him outside that makes sense to his reaction. He is anything up. He hears that there's another king and he doesn't just say, oh, it's not gonna, it's not gonna bother me. He completes a genocide in a city based on the fact that this person might come and overthrow him. That is how, that is how important this is for him to take care of this, this competing monarchy. And I wonder to the degree both of the reliability of Herod taking this seriously, how seriously do we take the king? Seriously. Is it a sentimental thing? Herod didn't think so. It's interesting to me in the Bible how many times the enemies of Jesus and God are the ones that almost take him more seriously than those who are his followers. As you see Jesus in his ministry, the people that recognize him the most, the ones that, that call him out the most are even the demons. Even the spiritual forces around him say, this is the son. We, we, gotta, we have somebody here that is far too powerful. Herod recognizes something, and I, I wonder if we do. And I, I think his discomfort, his fear, his isolation speaks to a lot about where we can be when it comes to this actual kingdom. Is it something we kind of just mock? Maybe we pay homage to, we go to a Christmas service, maybe we do that. I really want us to be shaken by how Herod is shaken this morning and see ourselves in him. There are two things really in this passage that are drawn up. And they're both C's, so it's perfect for me as a pastor to tell you. Competition and comfort. Competition and comfort in this passage and in, quite frankly, many others. Now, one reason we should take this passage very seriously, like Herod did, is because when he heard this, and you read this here, and we kind of even saw this a little bit last week with the Magi, these wise uh, counselors that came from the east, when he hears the news of king of the Jews is going to be one, immediately he says, hey, help me inquire about that. We saw, read this in the passage last week. And what his inquiry is about is to find where is this king going to be born? Not so I, he says, so I may pay, so I may go worship him. But his view of that isn't that he may go worship him. It's that he may go kill him. And we see that here and what he's doing. It's competitive. I mean, in the early days, just, I want you to hear a little bit about Herod himself. In his early days, he was described by his, in historical books, you can read this in a lot of different places, as good-looking and powerfully built. He was incredibly um, savvy when it came to both war and politics. And his history was that he was racially Arabic, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. He was an intensely complex man. And when we read this here, and, and, and as one commentator put it, this, this is one of those scenes that you don't talk about in the nativity story. The beginning of this, when, he, when Herod says, take the child and his mother to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and ki kill him. And then right after, Herod, seeing that he's outwitted by the Magi, furious, gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. That is a horrifying scene. That is not something you would want to see on television. It's awful. But I'll tell you, this is a small snippet of who Herod was. 
listen to this, just, just a, a taste of his rap sheet. He, he executed at one point more than half of the Sanhedrin. He killed 300 court officials just because he was frustrated with them. 300. He executed his own wife, his wife's mother, and three of his own sons on the basis of treason. He was so fearful and competitive and so neurotic and paranoid about his own kingdom, he was willing to do anything to keep it. And so imagine even this. Now Bethlehem itself was not a really big town. It, there were probably only 30 children maybe at most. Now, that doesn't diminish this, but think about in his rap sheet, this was nothing to him to give these orders. For him to say, we've got to take care of that. I'm not going to have somebody else called that because here's the interesting thing. In his early days as king, Herod was deemed as coming from this Jewish background as the king of the Jews. So to hear not just another king, but someone who was going to come and be the king of the Jews, it not only terrified him, it enraged him. No one was going to dethrone him. No one was going to come in there and take care of it. No one. A competing monarchy? We're not going to have it. If he's willing to, I mean, just let that wash over you for a minute. If he's willing to take his own children and his family's life to keep what he finds is his monarchy, his world, have everything the way he needs to have it, does this seem out of accord to you? How scary is that? You know, as I was looking back, I was uh, Diane Sawyer when she finished a few years ago and kind of was this big send-off from ABC about her, her you know, newscasting life and looking back. And, and she was asked, what are some of the, the great interesting moments of your career? What are some of the greatest ones? She said the, the top one was her interview with Saddam Hussein when he was in power. And it was fascinating to even see clips of it as she's talking about it in the background. And she's saying that it was so interesting to learn the world of Saddam Hussein. Because to sit with him and to ask questions and for him to ask her questions, it seemed like just a complete miss. And she would, he would make comments to her during this interview regarding America, Western culture, uh, things regarding specifics, whether it be women or uh, the way that we view our president or things like that. And often, Diane Sawyer would push back in that in interview and she'd say, that's actually not how this is. I don't know how you got that information or why you would see it this way. And, and when she would push back afterwards, she noticed that someone would come in and whisper in his ear. So as he was sitting there, someone would come up and say something to him in his ear and then walk away. And she realized after the interview was finished, what they were doing was encouraging him to say, don't worry about what she's saying. This is your world. Reinforcing his dictatorship. You think about that kind of life. Everything is the way that you have it. And in another world tries to come and actually have some sort of imposition, some sort of force in it, and all these characters just telling him what he wanted to hear. That is the world of a dictator. Imagine how isolating that is. The anxiety, the fear, the loneliness. The, no one 
can know you and you can trust no one. And yet you all surround yourself with people that tell you that you only matter, only you. Only you does this world revolve around. You know, we may not live in that kind of society, but I do think the question here for Herod and Saddam and us is this. What are you and I willing to do to create a world where no other world can infiltrate? I mean, we may not be dictators, so to speak, but we live in a culture that has given us so much power individualistically that we hold our rights up as no one can tell me what to do. We want to read, I think it's fascinating on the internet that we read articles typically, whether it's politically, socially, economically. One of the interesting things about the internet is that we typically read things that bolster our worldview rather than other opinions. It's just percentage fact. Why do we do that? Because we want voices that build us up. We want voices to tell us how much we matter and our world exists and this is my world. But this is the problem. What are we willing to do in the process? Who are we willing to squash? What are we willing to do to isolate ourselves, make ourselves so alone that don't we feel it? Who really knows me? Who can I trust? We have those struggles, the safety What are the voices that you surround yourself with? Look, this is a competing monarchy. He's right. Herod is correct. And yet his response, could it be a lot like ours? When Jesus actually comes to say, the way you, your secrets, the way you view your finances, the way you view the bedroom, the way you view your household, the way you view your friendships, the way you view school, the way you view all of these things, there is a competing monarchy coming in. This arrival, the advent, is not a sentimental thing to make us feel good. It's actually coming in to say, I'm a new king to show you the true way. And it will press against you. It is competition. And here's what's fascinating about what's even quoted here and how Matthew takes it. In verse 15, he says, where's, uh, verse, um, yes, sorry, 15. Where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. If you notice in this passage, there's a lot of quotes. This being the first of them. Where is this coming from? Matthew is drawing out something for us that's a lot larger than what we think. And at first you you see him contrasting, and he is contrasting Jesus as a king and Herod. But actually what Matthew's doing is a lot more than that. It's a subtle building. It's a lot greater. He's saying in this passage that that Jesus' kingship, his monarchy goes all the way back to when the people of Israel were in Exodus. When when they were slaves in Egypt, that there's something bigger here, that this king is bringing something more than just a competing kingdom, that he's coming to rescue and is the rescuer. If you look 
And if you have a Bible or if you have your phone, and I always encourage people to do this with their phones. The phone is helpful if you have a Bible app. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Bible app on a phone can be really helpful for you to learn where things are and how to read it. And we don't expect everybody in this room to be Bible scholars. We We want you to be learning and growing and continuing to be mastered by what you read in it. And if you look, if you go in Matthew, the first gospel in, in at least our English Bible, wasn't the first written, but the first one there, the first even five chapters of that book are saying there's someone bigger than what we know. The first chapter is a genealogy. It lists the begats, the begats, the begats, all the things that we always skip, you know. Who's the father of this and this and this and this? It's building the argument of who Jesus is. The second chapter is somewhat what we're reading about the Magi coming to visit and Herod, this competing kingdom. The third chapter is an identified deliverer. It's Jesus being baptized. It's John the Baptist saying, Here's, here is the one who is said to come. Chapter four of Matthew, right after that, is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, that he was there 40 days and 40 nights tempted. And then Matthew chapter five starts with this, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. All of those things I told you are key ingredients from a figure long ago that brought Israel out of bondage, Moses. Matthew is laying out for us subtly through and through that this is more than just a king. This is the deliverer. A Jew reading this would be like, wait, there's woven in here. This is is the rescuer. This is the one who is gonna bring us out. This is the new Moses. This is the new Exodus. This is the rescue that I've been waiting for. There's not a competition here. This guy is greater than anyone we would even think. Greater than the ones that we think were the greatest heroes of old. That is who Jesus is. I love this quote by Napoleon Bonaparte about his view of Jesus as a king. And and nobody really knows where Napoleon sat in terms of his Christianity. But listen to what he says. Napoleon said, I know men. And I tell you that Jesus is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That that resemblance does not exist. There is, between Christianity and other religions, a distance of infinity. There is a distance of infinity in this passage. It's not even an an easy comparison. This rescuer is coming in to bring the people out. And I don't think we think about rescue in that way. For us, when we talk about that, I was reading from, um, I don't know if you've read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a great book to read to your kids. And I'll be honest, it's a great book to read for me. And the thing that she, the language that she uses over and over in there is as she's writing kind of like ways to layer the Old Testament stories building to, to Jesus coming, you know, it's all kind of obvious. And my, my kids at this point, they're like, oh yeah, it's talking about Jesus. It's like the Sunday school answer. Oh yeah, Jesus, here he comes, you know, like they get that now. But the word she uses over and over is the rescuer. And I think that word is lost on us. I, I don't think we realize that we need to be rescued. That someone has to come because we can't get ourselves out of it. That, that's what it means. 
It means we believe that we can pull ourselves out. We can get out of these chains. Whether it's emotionally, physically, tangibly, whatever it is, we need rescue. It was worth the Lord Jesus to come in flesh to come get us because we think we can get out and we can't. We are in chains. And yet, here's the, the irony. We typically tame Jesus because we think we, we, we truly believe we have it all together. Because in our own hearts and minds, we are dictators. We want to rule our world. But Jesus is saying, you can't. You are in desperate need of rescue. <clears throat> and maybe you f- feel that rescue in terms of finances. Maybe there's a moment in this Christmas season, maybe there's a, a moment both socially you need rescue. Maybe there's a rescue physically. I've talked to more and more people who are struggling themselves or with family members who are dealing with cancer or something of great, great, powerful pain physically. We need a rescuer to come. We need someone to come get us. This is more than a competition. This is Jesus saying, I'm infinitely greater than what you think you need. He is worth bowing the knee to. And because he brings comfort, different than Herod, he brings comfort. When 9-11 happened years ago, I don't know where you were when that happened, 9-11. Some of you may have not been born yet. And you hear stories about these things. You've been in New York and seen the museum. But when it happened... It really brought our country and our world into a whole new view of safety, didn't it? It forced us all to ask, and with a religion actually attached to it, is this world safe? To ask that question, is this world safe? And most of the time we say no. We don't know if it's really safe. We don't know what that really means for it to be safe. And sadly, With that religion, any sort of religion has been brought up into that as not safe as well. And it's interesting to read this in comfort, and it talks in verse 18, another passage about after Herod says, I'm going to create a genocide. I'm going to take care of this. And how he feels he's going to settle comfort for himself is by wiping out anything else that would make him uncomfortable. So in 16, he realized that the, he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. He just wipes them out. And right after this, it's, it says, this is what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And there may be this kind of odd quote to you, but it's actually really powerful in the way that Jesus comes to bring comfort Jeremiah was talking about this in the word written name Rachel and Ramah. Rachel was a, a, a figure, a mother, a, a major matriarch in the Old Testament who actually died giving birth to one of the, the, one of the great patriarchs. And so one of the, this is about her death and weeping, right? People weeping for that. But also Ramah is, 
Jeremiah, and this is a place where Jeremiah lived, and what he would see, this is the picture that he had, and this is the quote. Jeremiah at this time was writing when the people of Israel were actually captured by Babylon, and they were being taken as captives. And, and Ramah was where he would sit and watch the Babylonians march Israel in chains in front of him to Babylon. This quote is brought back up about this genocide to tell us there is weep, weeping and bitterness and sadness and sorrow. And yet it's saying through this comes comfort. Not being comfortable, but comfort. Comes comfort for us. Even interesting that it says this in here in verse 18. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Refusing to be comforted. Sometimes the pain of what we are in feels so powerful that we refuse even to be comforted. We would rather sit in it. This is where the people of Israel were. They were in it. They were in their pain. You want to know something really sad about Herod? Herod believed this. He said it was... He said he knew that upon his death that no one would weep for him. And so what he did on his deathbed was he set up in his last order to arrange all the notable men of Jerusalem to be gathered in the Hippodrome, which is this major theater, amphitheater. And that there would be, upon news of his death, everyone was to be killed so that he could be comforted, so people would weep. And he would be remembered Here's the reversal of this kingdom. Jesus comes and doesn't try to take. He doesn't, what does it say? Take up the sword. He takes up the cross. He comes differently. He comes and he is actually, he begins his life on the run. He takes a life of being uncomfortable in order to bring us comfort, knowing that this weeping, it's the, the point of verse 18 that scholars say, it's hard to parse out what is really being brought there. But what they're trying to say is through bereavement, through sorrow, through pain comes blessing. Because we have someone who's coming to meet our sorrow. Someone who's coming to put himself in position of being uncomfortable. Think about how much immediately Jesus' life, he's born in a stable and he has to go on the run. He, he, he's, he's not even old enough to know what's going on. His parents are having to protect him from a genocide. He's being sought after everywhere. Does this sound like a sweet story? There's fear, anxiety, and yet through this sadness, through that, and the same that we are in, this is the life, this is the world this is the safety that we long for, right? That we think is not possible. Jesus enters what in then, if you imagine 9-11, think about this as well. What would it be like for a whole town to have all their male children wiped out? And the bereaving. Is it safe? Is it even safe to have our children? And yet this is the world Jesus enters to bring us comfort, to care for us. There's a 
One of my favorite quotes by Dorothy Sayers. I, I think I quote this nearly every year at Christmas because it's so potent for what is about. Dorothy Sayers was a female theologian who had incredible thoughts on faith and work and how they integrate. And she said this about God and what he's doing. God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering, and to subject to sorrow and death. He, that is God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he has played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life to the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it all worthwhile. This is what Jesus comes to do. He doesn't come to be sentimentalized. He comes to enter into the darkest places where you think comfort couldn't meet you. Isn't that what comfort is? Not being comfortable. Being comfortable is us numbing ourselves to the pain. Comfort is when it meets your pain and actually addresses it. Actual Greek word for comfort in the Bible, in the New Testament, is someone, it is the picture of someone standing beside you, speaking encouragement to you in your deepest Worst, darkest time of need. That is actual Greek picture of it. That God is coming to address it, to meet it. And isn't that incredible when you experience some moments of comfort in the deepest pain that you have, that there's a word, there's an action, something that actually hits your pain, that hits your sorrow in place that you didn't think it could actually be touched and it meets it. That's comfort. That's comfort. There's even, it's interesting, there's even articles written on this. There's an article in the Atlantic called Why Comfort Food Comforts. And this is the time of year, right, when we want comfort. And we gorge ourselves. <laughs> we eat the foods we always think of. Winter does that. But particularly during this time of year, the Atlantic says this. When the Oxford English Dictionary added a definition for comfort food in 1997, it, it traced the term's etymology back to a 1977 Washington Post magazine article. Isn't that interesting? It said, along with grits, one of the comfort foods of the South is black-eyed peas. But it says the Oxford English Dictionary, though, was wrong in this sense. That the phrase comfort food has been around at least since the 60s when a certain post was out. And it said this, adults when under severe emotional stress turn to what could be called comfort food, right? Food associated with the security of childhood like mother's poached egg or famous chicken soup. And it says this, we tend to think about, and this is how the article ends, we tend to think about the need to belong as a fundamental human need. And by doing that, we're equating it to other fundamental human needs like the need for food or water. That is, that we return and go to comfort food because we're trying to touch something. Trying to reach and eat something that is going to comfort us, that's going to solve or feel good in us. 
And it's much deeper. And it's funny, it's a silly kind of article, but isn't that the truth? Don't we turn to anything else to comfort us? And yet Jesus brings this comfort by making himself uncomfortable. You need to know that when we approach this table, this food that we're about to take is comfort food. You know why this is comfort food? Because it's not comfortable to come to this table. This comfort food actually feeds you in a way that no other food can. It addresses the needs deeper than just childhood longings. It addresses your adult longings. It addresses all the ways that you compete to try and make yourself someone and matter most when he gives himself to say how much you matter. I love what that article says, even though it's about food and comfort food. It says, in the basic need that we want to belong, Jesus gives his body as our comfort food so we know we belong. When you come to this table, you don't come to it knowing that you've solved everything in your life. You can't bring a competing world and taste the wine and bread. You can't. But you know what you can do? You can say, Lord, I submit that to you. Lord, I'm willing because you gave, he gave himself. Here's what he did to show you how important you are to him and his world. It forces us to submit and say, I'm willing to. If you're willing to give yourself to me in that way, that's how you approach this table. If you're here this morning and you find yourself saying, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if Jesus really is that king, I would encourage you not to take this table. Do it in the integrity Look, Herod himself, even as evil and as horrible as he was, he reacted to this, this king in a severe way. We should take the, be have the integrity to react in the same way, to think about this table. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, I follow Jesus, but I don't know how to follow him, you know what? Come, taste the comfort food of what your Savior has done for you. Be reminded, Advent is him coming to get you. That's just simple. It's simple. He has come to get you. And he has not stopped. And nothing stopped him. Not a tyrant thousands of years ago. Not even death on a cross. He calls you to this table. So let's stand now.